morning to you, Billy Bones, Billy Bones. Good morning to you, charming Billy. When I last saw your hands, they was brown as my own. Now up through white fingers, the grasses have grown. And what of this cutlass so carelessly thrown on the ground, Billy Bones, Billy Bones? Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. And here we are settled into what's becoming our, our studio here in Aaron. Uh, Aaron, here just off the square in... And we have Coors Banquet Beer, <laughs> the first time ever. <laughs> you, you brought beer to the podcast. Well, we used to record in the morning. And there was no way. I thought about that tonight. It's because of the morning. We've never done this. Yeah. But now it's after 5 o'clock. And, and it was like an 80s movie, like Goonies or something. After I set up all the equipment, I thought, wait, we should have a beer while we do this. <laughs> and I started looking around. Uh-huh. And pretty soon I was running out of time. And I was jogging through downtown. I made it to McCreary's. One of the employees, I won't say the name, said, no, this is illegal. I can't do it. Then they came back and said, all right, I'll do it for you. I said, no, I'm okay breaking the law. I won't make you break the law. So I ran again. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you found somebody who would sell you a six pack of Coors. It was a 16 year old who had an old like 1982 Mustang, (laughs) popped the back, gave him 50 bucks. I got the Coors. It was, it was amazing. (laughs) No, you you bought her a Smokey and the Bandit, didn't you? (laughs) That's right. Burt Reynolds pulled up. Uh, yeah, it was quite an adventure to get, you know, mediocre beer, but it has the cool, old-fashioned-looking bottles. See, I'm old enough to remember when Coors was the beer. You know, you understand Smokey and the Bandit. Do you know the movie? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's running a, a trailer load of Coors, which is not available east of the Mississippi. Oh, that's a thing. They well, just make that up. Oh, no, no, that was true. You couldn't get it. You couldn't get it. Here's what I will tell you. When I was in seminary in Princeton... In 1981, uh-huh. I was in the painting business in the summertime. I was five. <laughs> Some friends of I uh, uh, and I, other seminary students, uh, we were house painters in the summer, and that's how we helped to, you know, stay alive and finance our families. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so there's a lawyer in Princeton. He's got this big old Victorian house. And he calls us for an estimate. So we come and we give him an estimate. We give him a price. And uh, he comes back with a counter that's a good $1,000 below what we had quoted him. Now, this is 1981. This is 1981. Yeah. So that's like $15 million <laughs> now. And, and, and I look at my partner and we wince. And then the lawyer says, and I'll give you a case of Coors. <laughs> so a thousand dollars less and a case and of a Coors. case of Coors, and we signed. <laughs> Man, I didn't know I brought you that good a beer. Yeah, I could have charged you for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he had it stored out in a shed. You know what I mean? It was just. Uh, but anyway. Wow. Yeah. All right. So today, as uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, well, before we started recording, I have a question. Uh, each week, I bring some confusion about Tennessee for you to answer for the listeners. Last week, <laughs> I got no resolution on why people take license plates off cars. You all seem shocked that nobody else does that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, nobody's written in yet to say if it's okay, they do so it too. So what other strange Tennessee well, practice have you come up with okay. this week? So just what? Hundred yards that way mm-hmm. is is a roundabout, right? It's the square, but it's round. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I don't think you've made this simpler for the listeners, but yes, <laughs> this, the square is round, and there's a roundabout, and there's four, one, two, yeah, four, yeah, roads sure. coming up. Okay, so uh, listeners have to picture in the roundabout. There's an outer lane, and there's an inner lane. But this is a very small roundabout. Mm-hmm. Who would ever go in the inner lane and why? You'd just be stuck looping and looping. Maybe you wanted to get a better look at the at the Confederate soldier who stands on a pedestal in the middle of the square. So you're admitting there's no... His ass pointing north. <laughs> that, that is true. Yeah. Uh, to the listeners, the 
Go ahead. Tell okay. them the story. No, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I will sometimes go to that inner lane. Why? Well, if I'm, if I'm, if I were to enter from this point and I wanted to take effectively a left, I have got to pass two turns before I get there. Those in the outer lane may take a right on Main Street, or they may go up Fifth uh, Avenue, uh, Second, First Avenue, whatever that is. Uh, Third this Avenue. This is this is very. This is a very small circle. It is. I know. It it ain't Piccadilly Circus. I'll give you that. All right. So like yeah, I've seen like the Rome ones, the London ones. That I guess that makes sense. Yeah. You're gonna take some time. I was just confused. It was really busy, and I thought, man, if anyone went to that middle lane. They would never get out of the middle lane. Here's what I have noticed about people who move here from California. They are easily confused. <laughs> well, that's, that's true. You guys change the names of your roads all the time. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. It's weird stuff around here, but yeah. it's okay. Listeners can stay posted, and they'll either decide, wow, California has no idea what's going on, or the rest of you will say, yeah, there's some odd things happening in Tennessee. Okay, yeah. Stay tuned for Aaron's continued adventures in Tennessee. <laughs> continued confusion in the Confederacy. Uh, it just alliterated. I don't know. I'll probably yeah. make someone feel bad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've got a letter from a listener. We're going to open that in just a moment. We come back here on the Pirate Monk podcast, and that gives you just enough time to write in and let us know what you think about license plates and roundabouts. <laughs> podcast what is in our mailbag today well we have a number most of uh, the mail that we've gotten we have responded to privately but here's one i think that we can share with listeners uh, i'm going to disguise the name of the guy who's writing i'm going to call him i don't know what should i call him pompey or Pomp- julius Pomp- caesar whatever it is pompey uh uh-huh. anyway he writes hey pirate monks <laughs> After 15 months of legal divorce and four years of in-house separation before that, I decided to start dating. I've recently started dating someone I met online. It's been a wonderful experience so far. We got very specific right away about my recovery before we met. She asked outright if I've been honest about everything so far. And my history of porn use, how that has contributed to my divorce. One of the reasons that she's stood out was how she talked about her own recovery as part of the process of healing from her own divorce years ago. She's really special, and I am definitely excited. My question is, what do you recommend for how to handle the potential possible issue of relapses and slips? Since we've covered everything else so far, I want to cover this early in the relationship and get a healthy pattern going. I'm going to ask her the same question and see what friends recommend, but I thought I'd ask others as well. If you can't respond via the podcast in a timely way, I'll take an email or a text or whatever. I love this podcast, guys, so keep up the great work. 
uh, well, you were great. You did respond uh, with a with a message to uh, our friend Pompey. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but uh, why don't you just kind of rehash that or uh, encapsulate it for our for our listeners? Let's talk about it a little bit. What did you recommend to our friend? <clears throat> yeah, I, I think it's so cool that. You know, he's excited about this relationship for really good reasons. What a what a great thing to start a relationship with that level of honesty. Yeah. Uh, this whole issue of relapses and slips brings up my my automatic fear of those black and white categories. If relapse means failure and somebody says, okay, you've been honest. Now, I'm not talking about this couple in particular. Mm-hmm. They're saying she would do this. But if uh, a spouse, a significant other says, okay, great, we've been honest, and now you're not doing the bad thing anymore. But if you relapse, that means you've failed. If you ever do it again. Yes. Okay. That category is incredibly unhelpful for a number of reasons. Uh, Number one, it pushes us back into a place where we're going to have to lie if we do. Mm -hmm. It's already saying... uh, that statement says, I'm not a safe person to ever tell that you've slipped. Right, yeah, yeah. Don't ever tell me the truth again. Right. We got this far, and now we've been healed. Now we've moved on. Right. That's, it's not good. And that pressure actually, statistically, that person is going to be more likely to relapse and slip than a person who feels safe and secure within that relationship. But relapses and slips are a part of the process. Not an inevitable part. It is not a necessary thing. You don't have to relapse. You don't have to slip. Right. But it is something that is a part of many people's process, and it's a part of the process. It's a chance to learn. It's not uncommon. It certainly is a part of my recovery. Absolutely. Okay. And so if we understand it as uh, it's not an excuse, oh, well, if it's if it's a part of many people's process, then I guess I should plan on my next time to relapse. No, don't think like that. Everybody's hope is I don't want to relapse. I don't want to slip. But if I slip, then there's a chance to learn something. And if I can learn that within honesty with another person to say, okay, what was going on Mm -hmm. to learn? What were the triggers? What were the things that maybe I haven't looked at in my life and I haven't taken care of? Because I've only been focused on the issue, whether it's drinking or porn or drugs. I'm so focused on that that I forget there's things around it that create the perfect opportunity for me to relapse or slip. Mm -hmm. If those things aren't addressed and I do slip, then it's time to learn that. But I think for a loved one, we have to give and have that safety of saying, okay, you're not a failure in this. We are in this process together. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it's it's not boy that word betrayal in that it's, yeah. there, there are so many heavy words that get put into this that don't make it better for a person who is trying to go through recovery mm-hmm. it makes it worse and none of this excuses the behavior it's just not helping the behavior get resolved yeah so that's, that was my, my first thought. Yeah. And I'm excited they're having these conversations because these are exactly what people need to talk about. Sure, sure. All right, so what are you thinking? Well, I'm grateful that more and more we're living in a world where it's possible to have this conversation. I think the, that uh, the culture is waking up. The church is waking up to the fact that, especially, and we're talking here specifically about porn use. It, it's not the same, I don't think, as, for example, an adulterous affair. Yes, I right? would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, but we're talking about um, a very powerful stimulant that has made its way into the mainstream uh, and has ensnared m- most men and many women. Um, uh, and the temptation is when things get difficult in the actual uh, personal, physical, flesh and blood relationship to find some solace, uh, some self-soothing behavior, something in a virtual experience Mm -hmm. uh, that we're told uh, actually because it doesn't involve another person 
isn't actually harming anybody. No. We're now um, self-aware enough to know that that's a lie and that porn use is destructive. Um, yeah, it, 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 but it takes a great deal from uh, a partner, male or female, who knows that um, you know their significant other has has gone there for uh, has abandoned the relationship to find some peace or comfort outside it. Uh, and it's difficult, especially if you're in a highly moralistic religious environment. It's difficult not to call that betrayal. Right. And you can find people who will sign off on that and say you have every right. I mean, that's adultery. Right. So, I mean, pause on that thought. Yeah. Just because you can justify it. Like there are ways to, to say, well, yeah, I can. Uh, obviously, you're, you're looking at this other person. uh exposed and thinking of them in sexual ways. Jesus said, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Great, you've justified it. You've now won the argument that betrayal is a legitimate word. I'm not talking about legitimate words. I'm talking about helpful words. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. When we think, oh, I can win the argument to defend the legitimacy of a word versus, hey, is this going to help you heal and get better? Or is this going to push you back into shame and isolation where you will never admit to anything again because my legitimate words have driven you back in the closet? Yeah. Well, then I, I don't care. Yeah. And, and I'm willing to say they're legitimate words. I'm simply saying, especially in our relationships, we have to learn to crave helpful words. You know, uh, people often ask my wife how she was able to hang in to our marriage when uh, it became apparent that I had stepped out so many times with so many people. And uh, one of the things that she credits for her ability to be able to stay in and actually participate in our recovery journey is the fact that uh, she became involved early on. At the same time I was going through 12-step recovery, she became involved, uh, she got involved with a, a, a local Bible study group um, and she she was doing uh, she was engaged in a weekly course of study and honest conversation with other women, uh, in which she was given um, a an assignment every week. After the first year, it was so helpful to her that she became a group leader. She participated actually in this Bible study for many years. Uh, and the assignment in the uh, first of all, the rules were laid out early on. For the length of time that we're getting together weekly, ladies, we're not going to talk about husbands or boyfriends. We're not going to talk about anybody else's failures. The assignment that she was given for the first week and one that she then would pass on in subsequent years was, um, first of all, ask three people to pray for you on a daily basis that God will allow you to see your own sin. Jeez. (laughs) <laughs> yeah right keep going keep going <laughs> yeah so um it, it my wife has been faithful to me sexually for our entire re- relationship i have no doubt about that i have sinned against her in ways that she has never sinned against me and never would And yet, my wife somehow believes that she and I are sinners in equal need of grace. And um, I I hear her at times talking to other women on our front porch. I don't know if I'm supposed to be hearing what they're saying, but (laughs) if the screen door is open... It's fair game. It's not eavesdropping. No, no, no. And some, some woman who has just been hit by the train. She has just discovered her infi- her husband's porn use or infidelity, has come to my wife for some kind of some counsel and advice. Um, I have heard Allie on more than one occasion say, don't make him promise never to do it again. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he doesn't want to do it again, and maybe he won't. 
but you can't put that pressure on him. I don't know who gave her that advice, but I'm so grateful to hear her extend it to other people. And why was that important for you? Uh, because um, my journey of early recovery was not uh, pretty. I was a relapse champ. Now, I we didn't set it up in such a way that I had to confess every relapse to her. I had guys mm-hmm. that I would talk right. to, right? So to that's process the, it's and the learn. classy alleyism. Yeah. I'm okay with you not telling me every detail as long as you're telling every detail to someone. That's right. But occasionally she would ask the question. And the deal we had was that she would always get an honest answer to an honest question. When she would ask me if I had a relapse, I didn't have to live with the panic of thinking that my marriage would be over, she would leave if she knew that I'm still fighting my way out of this. Mm. It still hurt to tell her, but it wasn't. Uh, but uh, but the stakes weren't so high that I couldn't tell her the truth. So hear this clearly, spouses, whether you're male or female in this. <clears throat> You are not responsible for your spouse's actions, whether they're relapsing or staying uh, abstinent. That's that's not on you. That's their journey. Yeah. But you can participate in this in a way that is more helpful or less helpful. Mm -hmm. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. This isn't your responsibility. Um. Because that's just, that is not fair to put on you. And and by the way, some people are not going to stay sober. And and if you think it's on you, it'll be your failure. It's not your failure. Right, right, right. We're simply talking about little things that, I mean, what Nate just described is creating that sense of, I want to say space and freedom. Those are the words. Not freedom to sin, but freedom, freedom to that, heal. Freedom to heal. Thank you. Yeah. That that failure will not destroy you. You have a person who's in it with you. Yes. Not a parole officer. Not right. someone who's waiting to catch you trying to escape. Someone who's with you for the healing. And that's I mean that's just a that's a beautiful beautiful thing. I think we've gone a little off uh, from the question, but I think it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. There you go, uh, Pompeii. <laughs> Pompey. <laughs> the worst fake name ever given on the show. Pompey. Pompey Squarepants. <laughs> Just got worse. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you're glad we read your letter today. Yeah. Well, we have a great guest today. Uh, this we've we've already recorded the interview, and I have to say, it did not go in any way. Uh, the way I planned. And that always ends up being better than the way I planned. Isn't that humble? I'm, yeah. Well, I'm not humbled by that. Don't put your humility on me. Uh, <laughs> well, stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute with a great guest and a very stimulating conversation here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Stimulation. <laughs> <laughs> I am 
stuck up a tree somewhere. Well, we're back on the Pirate Monk Podcast with a return guest, backed by popular demand, one of our most stimulating guests here on the podcast. Tony Kriz is with us again. Now, how, how has this changed over the years? Because, you know, in the past, I'm sure you were always introduced as Tony the Beat Poet from Blue Like Jazz. And then you've, you know, it could have moved to your book aloof or, but I'm, I'm curious, how do you want us to introduce you? What's the best introduction you could receive? Boy, I would say uh, husband to Amy. Oh. And father of three boys, and uh, a sinner desperately trying to figure out how to be a saint, hmm. failing daily. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm chronically unsatisfied by both answers and experiences, but I, uh, I find a lot of hope in gathering stories and uh, experiences. Hmm. Beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, Tony, the beat poet from Blue Like Jazz. <laughs> uh, sorry, I had I had to. It was wrong. So uh, this this you can cut this out, but uh, I'm I'm going to this re- this recovery group right now. Uh-huh. Yeah, nice. I sit down with these with these eight new friends, right? And uh, I mean, Blue Like Jazz is a lifetime ago. I mean, it's yeah, that book came out like 17 years ago or something. And, uh, and certainly a lot has changed since then, but I sit down in this group and the guy leading the group opens, he's like, okay, we're going to go out, we're going to share a little about our lives, who we are. And I swear he didn't get 24 words into his introductions. Like my life was transformed when I read this book called Blue Light Jazz. And I'm sitting there going, this is a nightmare. <laughs> and, and you know, the group was like, oh yeah. Mm, 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 mm. Do we have to cut so that out? So they still have no idea. No, no, they still have no idea. Yeah. All right, we'll cut that out even though I'd like to leave it in. No, leave it in. We can leave it in? Yes, I mean, absolutely. you said we should cut it out. He said we can cut we it We can out. cut it out, so we can leave it in? Sure we can. Because we don't ever well, cut anything guys, out. Guys are in charge. Oh, okay. sweet. Well, then we'll leave it in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I asked Tony to be a part of a conversation that I have literally been waiting to do this episode for a year and a half two years and tony was one of only maybe two or three names that i thought this would be fun to have the conversation with these guys uh not because i thought he would have the answer because i don't think there is an answer to this but that tony's just great at having hard conversations he's not afraid of the questions he's not afraid of the questions yeah yeah so that's why tony's here today uh, he's backed by popular demand indeed, but mine it was the biggest request in that popular demand. Yeah, yeah. Well, l- l- let's start this way. I love that you're going to a recovery group now. My, yeah. uh, my experience, uh, my world started to turn upside down when I went to a recovery group for the first time. I didn't realize how homogenous my circle of friends was until I got into a recovery group where, you know, our common thread was something that nobody ever talked about, really, in polite company. And we were so different. And yet, uh, all relying on uh, the strength of a higher power to bring us some sanity. Although that term meant so many different things to so many of us. And then, uh, you know, of course, my first instinct was try to get everybody on my track, right? So I'm there to evangelize or I'm a missionary to the, uh, to the recovery group. They shut that down pretty quick, right? And, and uh, taught me that in that group, my first job was just to listen. And then, you know, this, well, I'm quite certain that God has to behave and operate in certain ways and under certain conditions. And he does not respect any of those rules. He shows up in a group where he's not supposed to show up. I hear him from people who I'm not supposed to hear him from. Is that some of your experience as well, Tony? That's a that's a that's a larger question that I would we could just talk about that if you want to. No, um, right, we'll start with that then. If we don't but, get to my topic I've been waiting a year and a half for, 
It's fine. Oh, I start thought that with was Nate. Okay, I'm, I I began on a tangent. It's good. Okay, well, it's a good question. Well, let me back up a little bit. Um, so, maybe 16 years ago, we bought our first house, and my wife and I moved in, and it was a piece of crap house, just uh-huh. an absolute dive. But it had four bedrooms, and we only needed two of them, and so we were like, you know, we're we're sort of, you know. Oh, we live very open lives and mm-hmm. we're like, well, let's open up our house to people. And sure enough, people started coming and, and we had two, this first year, we had two or three people at a time living in our home with us. We were sharing it with adults. And after about three years of doing that, my wife and I, one day we were sitting around, we were patting ourselves on the back for, you know, all these people had come to our home and, you know, that we were able to be a part of their lives in times of transition and pain and whatever. And we started to just go through the list of all the people that had been through our house. And by the time we got to the end of the list, both my wife and I were um, were shocked by the list mm-hmm. because what we realized is that of the twelve people that had lived in our home with us, every every single one of them was white, middle class, college yep. educated, churchgoer, boom, 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 right, all the boxes, right. And um, my wife and I, who who both claimed to be fairly progressive people in this, in how we try and live our lives, we realized that we were so in our own way that we could not attract anybody into our lives that weren't exactly like us. Yeah. And the, 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 the epiphany of that, that even though we, we claim to live by these values, we literally could not get out of our own way. Mm-hmm. And so we did the only thing that we could do because we couldn't change who we were, we couldn't change the meta narrative we'd been living under. We just didn't have the power to do it. Right. We asked God, we asked God to, to intervene. Yeah. And um, the next person I think that moved into our house was like, we got literally got a knock on the door. Yeah. Wow. Open up the door and the doorway was eclipsed by this body. Mm. It's 300 pound Mexican American kid. Yeah standing on my front porch saying, I heard you speak once in Texas. I live in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Heard you speak once in my school in Texas a couple of years ago. Oh yeah. Okay. I remember being there. He said, and you seem, you seem like a nice person and I'm just trying to find my way. So I've wandered across America and I've ended up here in Portland and I'm wondering if I can stay in your home. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know, like literally did not know the man. Yeah. He comes in, ends up living with us for three years. The next guy was an African-American man Mm -hmm. on my porch, wondered if he could stay with us. Then a homeless couple. And next thing we know, our home is full of people who don't look anything like us. But we, I I literally believe I did not have the power to do that Mm. because of this necessity. And then out of that, um, in the same time frame, I got invited to a small group that I've been a part of now for 12 years. And that small group is radically multiracial, multi-class, multi-generational. And I've, uh, in that time, had a chance to put myself under the, under the leadership, under the guidance, under the eldership of men who are nothing like me. And the experience of having the, can I swear on this podcast? Uh, please, it's encouraged. Yes. The experience of having the shit kicked out of me, mm-hmm. to have the white kicked out of me, to yeah. have middle class kicked out of me to have the educated smarty pants kicked out of me by men who had every right to do so Mm -hmm. who had lived a life and walked a life and had a wisdom that was different than my own and that experience has been transformational uh to be under to be under the leadership of african americans and native americans wow beautiful wow that would take the rest of the time to unpack. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we should. Should we? I don't care. Well, I, I do think that there's a connection okay. with what you proposed. In the All right. right? Not, oh, oh, my goodness. Yes. That's where we were going to end up. I, I yeah. 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 So we so here's the thing. We live in a world that is uh, as diverse as it's always been, but becoming more and more fragmented as uh, the Ooh, different... Say that again. That was you're a writer, as diverse oh. as it's always been. Yeah, but becoming more fragmented. In other words, um, we're insulating ourselves within. Um, uh, 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 yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, within the, the uh, you know, the ghetto we were born in. Uh, I, you know, I remember from my upbringing, I grew up in, you know, a segment of the, Christ, of the Western Christian church, right? So I grew up in Pentecostalism prior to the charismatic movement before it kind of went mainstream and respectable. It was very blue-collar. It was strongly uh, anti-intellectual. There was, and we had so many political biases. Um, and I was, and I sincerely believed, I was taught that we were the spirit-filled church. We were the ones who had all the answers. We were superior to everybody else. Well, as far as I knew, we were the only Christians in town. There were, there were us, and then there were Methodists and Presbyterians and, God forbid, Catholics. Um, right? Yeah. Oh, I was I was raised in a very anti-Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, that runs counter to this cosmic vision of the body of Christ that is drawn from every tongue, tribe, and people group, in which there's no Jew nor Greek, male nor female, uh, uh, slave nor free but all are one in Christ Jesus. We're this body, we're this organism that are so closely connected we can only move together. Instead, it seems like these days, every little piece has its own websites, uh, its own narrative that you have to buy into, and part of how we define ourselves is by demonizing anybody who doesn't share every damn thing we believe in. All right, so pause. Tony said his thing. Yeah. About God kicking his ass through other people. Right. Nate's now said his thing. Yeah. About the, right, now I'm going to give my introduction yeah, to the topic. Yeah. Okay. So I was looking for lawn mowers last weekend. This is connected. Okay. All right. I just said it was my intro. I didn't say it was connected. This okay, was how right. I was going to introduce this. Okay. Go ahead. I was looking for a lawn mower. All right. And I thought. I do not know if I need a mulcher or a side shooter or a bag filler. All right. So we looked on Craigslist, and when I would find one, I would Google, is this a good lawnmower? Uh-huh. Every time I Googled it, I would find that Hondas are the worst lawnmowers ever made and that Hondas are the best lawnmowers ever made. <laughs> And at the end of researching lawnmowers, each one that I would find, yeah. I knew nothing more than what I started with. Oh, yeah. So, this was my experience of there is no point in trying to find the truth about lawnmowers because there is an apologist for every camp yeah. that is more expert than me. Whether it's uh, anti-Honda guy or pro-Honda guy, who might argue? I don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. Okay, now we're going to go back in reverse here. I got you. Every camp has an expert. Sure. Which means if we find it, we're stuck with it. And also, and also, Google, Google, by the way, and ninety-five percent of all searches on the internet are done through Google. Google keeps a record of every search we ever make. That's embarrassing, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) And has an algorithm design that's always changing and adapting to deliver to any of my search queries answers that are likely to fit my predispositions that's that is really rough yeah yeah no it's it's worse than that it's um google for instance yeah create a virtual you yeah and we're we're we all are happy to submit to it because it simplifies our search and it simplifies our virtual life. Mm-hmm. So there's a virtual Nate online mm-hmm. right. that is out there pre-filtering uh, every search that you make. Right. That, that Google owns the virtual you. Yes. And we, we, we give ourselves to this virtual us. Now, the really scary thing is when the virtual us stops serving us by simplifying our searches and we start serving it. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it is it is creating the you that Google wants to create. Yes. Uh, that it's selling. It's the me that Google is selling. 
because I'm yeah. the product, right? It's selling me to advertisers your, your around the world. Information is, right. is what it's selling, and that is its that is its model, its economic model. Right. So coming back around the horn to you, you talked about your uh, your meta. Which meta were you talking about? You and your wife had developed over your life. Your meta narrative. And now, before your meta narrative was simply, I grew up in this uh, in this neighborhood. I grew up with this dad who said these things. But now that's being shaped in much more complex ways, wouldn't you say? Yeah, in much more overt ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the meta narrative that keeps that keeps me in my own way is one that I just it just composed of my blind spots and my habits, yeah. right? But now there's actually an aggressive external force that is trying not only to keep me in that box, but actually to po- further polarize me yes. into more positions because anger is what moves us. Mm-hmm. Anger is the most sellable attribute. And so the more that we can be uh, narrowly, narrowly defined and, and structured to be against anything that's not within this. It's not even me. It's, it's actually a, a, a more polarized version of me. Yes. Any outside of that more polarized version of me is, is demonized. And that's how I become a more sellable product. Yes. So as, as I was thinking about this and as, as we, Tony, as you and I talked about the other night, I feel like there's a couple dangers because this isn't just this runs throughout our life. It's not just about political and religious things. It, it is about lawnmowers. It's about everything that that can cause me to move, to give up on certain things. But then when I look up, uh, well, I just heard this thing about abortion that's happening. I'm going to look that up. Okay, that issue is now subject to whatever that search is. So it runs throughout our lives and it causes a few reactions one seems to be uh like you said like you both said i take a hyper position based on where i'm being led it's going to show me just this information or if someone looks at all the information they can become discouraged and apathetic and no longer want to engage a topic because there's just too much information and how can i decide so those are two. What are what are the other consequences of this this glut of information that's also being directed subtly in the background? Well, I think this all militates against love. Um, if I am forever being told, and if I am beginning to believe that those who hold positions different from mine on key issues are um, are evil, are so wrong that they must be avoided or opposed. Um, I, I'm going to find it very, very difficult to approach them in the way Jesus commanded me to approach everybody, including my enemies, which is in love. And I'm also going to see them as other. I'm going to see them as far more different from me than they actually are. That's going to feed my sense of superiority and my pride. And it's going to make it, and especially when these people are believers, when that's where it comes down to it to me. I I hate to see the way that the church is being fragmented by this process. I'm sorry, go ahead, Tony. Believers, do you mean Christians? Yeah. Well, well, I don't know. that's That's a huge question. How do we? It's, a, it's an offensive term to me. Yeah. Believe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. To to say that because someone has the same belief system as I do, they they're they not a believer. believer. Yeah. And if they don't, they become an unbeliever. When in fact, uh, beliefs are a very very um, precious thing. That people, then everyone, that everyone holds, everyone has beautiful. Yeah. Those beliefs are, are the are the are the the totality of their story, their hopes, their dreams, their pains, their wounds, their desire for a better world, and desire for a better self. Yeah. And I walk around the world dividing those out into unbelievers and believers. I find a very a, a terrible a terrible way of sheeps and goading the world. And you know uh, what? I'm so glad you pulled me up short on that because I'm offended every time a, a, a radical Muslim divides the world into believers and unbelievers and puts me in an unbeliever camp. And yet, here I am doing the same damn thing. 
I yeah. wish I wish I could eradicate that particular dichotomy from Christian language, believe yeah. or unbelief. Yeah. Just Christians and non Christians. That's that's fair. Sure. The, uh, Christian is a definable dogma. Right. And that's that's fair to go, okay, do you hold this dogma? You're Christian. If you don't, you're a non Christian. That's fine. But believer or unbeliever, I mean this is this is part of what we're talking about, right? And and what you were you were getting at about love. Because uh, this discussion, uh not to not to get too serious, but it really it comes down to what we basically believe. Mm-hmm. And what do we believe about information? What do we believe about wisdom? What do we believe about people? And ultimately, what do we believe about God? And our foundational epistemology is information, is truth, capital T truth, right? housed in humans, or is it housed in the Spirit of God? Um, saturating all things at all times and speaking to all people at all times. What do I believe? Do I believe those things? And if, and if I don't believe, if I believe that information, that truth is housed in humans, then I'm going to choose some humans are true and some humans are false. That's my only response. But if my, if I believe that truth is ultimately housed in God, then the world that I walk around in is no longer divided up into these two teams. It is now simply the world of God that I get a chance to dance in mm-hmm. and discover God wherever I might discover God as God steps out into the world. So I know I, I, I'm hearing you say something that is not at all a statement of universalism, and yet that's got to be the first pushback for a lot of people when you say there's the truth is housed in God, so that's not universalist, but that's in all things, and we're dancing in it, and they're like, well, what, what does that mean? So what, what would you say to that person that said, I don't know, it's, is Tony talking about some strange gods in all things and housing truth? Yeah, so there, there's an orientation that happens, right? So, uh, Nate, you made the comment that um, that we live in this world where information is, where we can get to anything. Mm-hmm. This pluralized world where we have, we have access to universities of information like we've never had before. And the opposite of that would probably be something like a first century village uh, in Palestine. We'll we'll call it Nazareth. Mm. And growing up there, uh, surrounded primarily around people of similar economic background, similar ethnic, religious background, only interacting with those people in any given moment. And then um, someone rises up above that world and um, we call him a rabbi a purveyor of, of wisdom. And how does he walk out in the world? Well, this, this rabbi walks out in the world and um, calls a centurion, have, has, says a centurion, he was amazed. He was amazed by his great faith. Yeah. yeah. Uh, says to a Canaanite woman, your faith is great. Mm. Um, receives, receives, receives ministry. Um, anointed for death by a woman of, of, of ill repute, right. baptized by a criminal. Jesus' early life was financed by stargazers from the East, the very, the very definition of people outside of his socioeconomic group, religious group, yeah. and, um, and submitted. And God, God is so comfortable to invite those characters into God's story uh, because uh, we— Ultimately, God's work is not is not housed in subclasses and subgroups. Now, I tell that story. I tell the story of Jesus because Jesus is the is my end all be all. Mm-hmm. So, I'm not a universalist. Um, there are ways that I'm a pluralist. There are ways, but um, but ultimately, I'm a particularist, and I and I believe that Jesus is the center of all things. I believe that God that Jesus is the 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 expression of God in the world. And I believe I believe in a Trinitarian God who expressed God's self uniquely through a particular religious book that I that I call the Bible. Um, I believe all those things, but that doesn't. I'm, but my belief requires me to not limit God to um, to human constructs. Yeah, that would, that would be foolish. That would be that that wouldn't if if. If God was limited to constructs that I can conceive of and control, then God, uh, by definition, is no longer God. He is only yeah. as big as the constructs. Yeah, well, God only as big as me. Yeah. 
And then suddenly I'm in charge of the administration of truth, which means that I'm actually worshiping myself. So here's here's what is really weird. You started out with a story that had uh, nothing to do with what I wanted to talk about because Nate, Nate took you there. It's his fault. But I think it does have everything to do with what we're talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. Everybody else gets it but me. I'm the last to get it. I know. My question or my frustration was you have all the information available right in front of you, and yet it is harder and harder to access any information that is transformative or life-changing. Your story at the beginning was, yeah, I'm stuck with these meta-narratives, these things that just are automatically, and the only thing that will change that are relationships and people that push me to a truth I don't want to see. Everything you said about Jesus are stories that are truths no one wanted to see within that culture. No one wants the centurion in. Nobody wants the stargazers. Nobody, uh, all of that. And so it's it's actually funny because uh, it, it shows how much I wanted to discuss, hey, how do we find some answers out there? Like what are some grids we can apply? I just wanted to bat that around. And yet I love that it comes back to, ah, screw it. Just meet some people you don't know. You want to know about lawnmowers? Go meet three guys who mow lawns for a living. You'll learn everything you need to know. And ultimately, you'll take a leap of faith because they might have a Honda that's been amazing for them. You'll get one that breaks down. But ultimately, you have to make a decision based on what you've learned from that relationship. And it might bite you in the ass. And you'll have to live with that. Hmm. I don't know. That's just my thoughts from that. Yeah. How much of it in your mind, Tony, comes down to relationship? How much of this is is cognitive and theoretical and theological and philosophical, and how much of it is personal? Yeah, so Aaron's initial question is like, you know, how, where do we go to find the information? And, and yeah, I mean, if you live your entire world in, what, you know, listening to MSNBC or listening to Fox News or whatever, you're, you're going to, you're going to, submit yourself probably to a fairly narrow bandwidth of opinions right we'll probably reinforce things that you already think and believe and so we could talk about oh yeah there are better places to get your news better places to get your information whatever um i don't have much to say about that i'm not an expert in those things but ultimately i think the problem is with me it's not even with what comes through my screens and through my laptop and through my searches the ultimate problem is me and um and back to foundational beliefs, I am not foundationally an individual. Mm. Um, I've been created in God's image, therefore I'm foundationally communal. Let us create humankind in our image, let us create them, male and female. I am foundationally communal. Yes. And, um, and, in my, and the, the most diverse community in the history of history is the Godhead. Mm. Diverse in every way. The whole expanse of creativity, the whole expanse of expression contained within that community. And when I limit myself to a communal life of people who look like me and read like me and dress like me and vote like me and shop like me, spend like me, um, inevitably, there's very, very room for my blind spots, my limitations, my godlessness to be exposed. Mm -hmm. And what hope is there? What hope is there for someone to step in and show me what I cannot see if my life is not submitted to the other? Mm. That really as, yeah. As godless. And that, that struck me when you described your life today as being submitted to elders, uh, who don't match your demographic? Uh, it's not—it's not just exposure, but it's submission. Um, where did that humility come from, man? How did explain how you became so humble? <laughs> no, 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 no. In classic, in classic twelve-step recovery, uh -huh. which I greatly appreciate. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, Bill W. writing in the 12 and 12 says that humility really underlies all the steps. Somehow we got to get back there. 
Um, uh, and you're a smart guy. You're an articulate guy. Um, if you're, and I put myself in those categories as well, there's, there's a kind of a big load of pride that comes with that. It's true. Um, was it, it, I suppose you are attributing it to the, to the spirit of God. I don't know. What made you want to actually, did you see the poverty of your own intelligence, the limitations of your own understanding? What would make you do that? The longer you stay silent, he's going to give you every option. It's going to be perfect. The the level of my discomfort with this question is impossible. For me, it was sex addiction, by the way. So go ahead. So um, it started when I was 21 and I graduated from college. And three and a half weeks later, I climbed on a plane and I moved to Albania, where I moved in with a Muslim family um, right after the wall fell in Albania. Wow. And I lived with a Muslim family for two years. And when I when I moved in with the Muslim family, um, they were, uh, they I I used them. They were, they existed to, to uh, serve my needs because they were, they were peasants and they were Muslims and they were a whole bunch of categories that were very dismissive to me. Uh. Um, because I was there as a missionary and I was there to do the work of God and these people only, only had a functional role in the world that was to, to provide me a room and cook my meals. And, um, but then a funny thing happened while living and this is a family they didn't speak english and i didn't speak albanian when i arrived i mean this was a very dynamic experience for a young ignorant kid from oregon who was raised in the whitest town you could imagine over time they uh, they 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 adopted me hmm. they um they 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 loved me in many ways that I hadn't experienced from my, from my family, um, my, my, um, that I grew up with. Uh, they were compassionate and, and invited me and, and, and loved me and cared for me and, um, protected me and, um, and, and loved my stories and quite frankly, loved my faith. They felt honored to have, uh, somebody who was trying to love God in their home. Uh, and that, that was, a, that was a shocking experience. So that was probably where it started. The, um, the, the multiracial group that I've been a part of here in Portland. Uh, I was, I was, um, I had been married five years. We had, we had a son and another one on the way. And at that particular point in my life, I was in crisis. Um, I had been a missionary overseas for 10 years. I'd come back. Um, I hadn't really dealt with the, um, the pain and, and the PTSD of that experience. And um, I was screwing my life up. I was, my, my marriage was in danger. Um, uh, I was in a lot of pain. And I needed... I desperately needed other voices to help me. I, I needed elders to care for me and to guide me. And, um, and so I guess all of the story is to say it's, it has been my, my tendency towards failure that has been the thing that has opened me up. And because I, I mean, I'm, I'm the ultimate product of America. I'm, I'm a white kid um, who's had privilege and um, was trained to be the god of my own story. And it's only the fact that my life has time and again ended in a car wreck of a life that um, I've started to open up to my desperation. And I fight it constantly. I mean, I'm, I fight it constantly. I'm, the most cynical person, um, but, but God, God doesn't let me down. Yeah. The gift of desperation. 
the one that never made it on anyone's Christmas list. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's awesome. There is so much here that I I want to chew on. Uh, we are running out of time, but this conversation has gone in a completely different direction than I planned on. So how, how do you want to even wrap it up? I don't even care at this point. No, this no. That felt like the great... I hope this is encouraging to our listeners, you know. Um, I think people listen to this podcast because we do our best here to talk honestly about light and shadow, about life and all its complexity, and about our failures without having to dress them up or explain them. Um, and, uh, you know, there's always this voice that tells us that um, our own moral failure, our own ability to live up to our own uh, highest standards, our own, you know, somehow pretends disaster and that we're headed for a life of despair and irrelevance. When what I have found in my life is that, you know, the doorway to a new life, to a greater understanding, to a richer experience is that failure. Um, and, um, and usually the answer is going to come. My help is going to come from a direction I don't expect from the person I'm not looking for. It's gonna show up in frickin' Nazareth when I'm looking for Jerusalem. It, it, it's, it, it, it's not gonna look like the king I think I want. Um, and I hope it's an encouragement to our listeners. If right now, you know, your life is a shit show, it may be that you're at the threshold to something fantastic. Um, but but uh, it takes I think uh, humility, which is forced on us. I think, as I often say, um, humility is inevitable, but humiliation is optional. So when we choose humility, or are <laughs> are humiliated in ways that we've resisted, but it's God's grace that gets us there. Um, it could well be that that person who's going to bring the next answer. Uh, who's going to open up the next door, who's, that next path to that next place of freedom is going to be the last person uh, we'd expect. I've of, we, we often say here, Christianity, rightly understood, is a team sport, not an individual event. Our job is not to recruit the team. Our greatest challenge, my greatest challenge, is not to drive away the ones God sends. That's funny. Not to recruit the team. Yeah. Not to drive away the one he sends. Oh, that's painful. Does that does that resonate, Tony? Does that sound yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's this um there's this great old prayer. Thousand year old prayer. Christ is a light illuminating guide me. Christ is a shield overshadow me. Christ under me, Christ over me, Christ mm -hmm. beside me on my left and my right. Then it, and in the prayers, this day be within and without me, holy and meek yet all powerful. And I love these lines. Be in the heart to whom I speak, be in the mouth of the one who speaks to me. Mm. Wow. Fantastic. This day be within and without me. And this idea that God, God does want to speak to us. But the prayer is doesn't define who the who the person whose mouth is speaking to me. Mm -hmm. It says the prayers that God just speak, allow me to be able to hear your voice through the person. And, um, and that's, and that's an orientation for stepping out into the world. I don't want to wrap it up any other way than that. We'll be right back on the pirate monk podcast. Think about that people. Thanks, Tony. Someone is talking
and the Pirate Monk Podcast. Here's the thing about recording uh, on Monday, late Monday afternoon. The good thing is we can drink beer while doing the podcast. Coors Banquet. <laughs> East Town Turn. Look at Smokey Run. The bad thing is we're running right up against the Samson meeting, which starts 10 minutes from now down the road. <laughs> so we need to close quickly so I can get to my meeting. So... So that's all the time we have for today. Send us some emails and stuff. Yeah. Hey, we'd love to hear from you. You can you can always reach us at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, don't forget about that Samson retreat in Scotland that's coming up. Well, I think it's only about seven weeks away. I think I just recruited a special speaker today. Ooh. Named Brian Kay. That would be freaking awesome. Ooh. Now that I've said it, online has to come. But I'm putting him at about 60% right now. Really? Uh, really. So, guys, uh, you can look back at previous episodes that he's been on. He is one of our favorite theological doctor-slash-marriage-and-family therapists yeah. in the world. And a pastor pirate from way back in the day. It's going to be an incredible time in Scotland. It's going to be a small group. I'm, I, I'm, I am resigned to the fact that we're not going to have 100 guys in Scotland. It's going to be an intimate group, but I think it's going to be very special. But Mel Gibson also started with a small group of men who wanted to paint their faces and wear dresses. And look what <laughs> happened by the end of the movie. They did all kinds of things, killing large amounts of people while still wearing dresses. That's what we're going to have by the end of the weekend. As long as we don't get our intestines pulled out. Might happen. Okay. No promises will be made. <laughs> okay. All right. Hey, thanks for joining us this week on the Pirate Monk Podcast, this obviously highly unscripted conversation that we have weekly. We're really looking forward to getting this thing back on track uh, for weekly episodes. And now that we have a home, Aaron, right here, right, right here. off the square in Franklin, Tennessee. Facing each other across the table. Now that you're here, it's going to happen. So uh, until next time. I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Arg. And so, any waits, any waits, any waits for a call from a friend. The same, it's the same, was it always the same? Anyways, for the